Janelle was going to choose. Thank you, Rachel, for serving in that way. All right, you're going to need a copy of Scripture. Genesis 2 is where we're at. Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. At our breakneck speed, we've turned all the way to pages 2 and 3 in your pew Bible. Well, maybe you can relate, but one of the things that I found uh, kind of most shocking as I moved up here to New England was how many people said, call me Bob. My dad is Mr. Smith. Now, you might think that by the age of 24, I should be able to relate to people on a first-name basis when I moved up here. But it's not just adults that people say, call me by my first name. More and more, adults are encouraging children to call them by their first name. Gracie goes to CrossFit in Epsom, and one of the ladies there asked Gracie if she would consider babysitting for her. They exchanged numbers, and Gracie wrote to Mrs. Grimes, Mrs. Grimes, I would be happy to babysit your child on Saturday during CrossFit. To which Mrs. Grimes responds, very first thing, please, parentheses, please, four exclamation points, call me Carolyn. Okay, right? Adults introduce themselves to kids more and more by their first name. Everyone from bank tellers to waiters and waitresses to our kids' coaches, Sometimes even doctors want to be known by their first name. If you go to the eggshell, Dave Rice, every waitress there calls you Dave. I show up, they call me Hun. <laughs> just not, yeah, I mean, they just assume familiarity, right? It's our default setting. You know what I think it is? In our country, it is just that democratic impulse to want to resist any form of elitism. Dr. Owens, call me Josh. Pastor Josh, hey, I don't call you electrician Tim. <laughs> call me Josh. We just don't want to be elite, and so we want to be familiar with anybody on a first-name basis. We almost have a hard time imagining it any other way. I think the way we approach each other might also be the way that we assume we can approach God on that familiarity first name basis. We assume that anyone and everyone can be on a first name basis with God if they want to be. We assume that as a matter of course, God wants to be in a relationship with us. The only real question that we think that exists today is what kind of relationship do we want to have with him if we want to have one at all? But faith family, are we right in transferring our familiarity with one another that we so prize? Are we right in transferring that to God? Is it really the case that God is waiting to have a relationship with humanity and that it's up to humanity to decide what that relationship will look like? We're going to put that question to the test as we look at Genesis 2, 4 through 17. In the process of reading this, we are going to discover that according to Christianity, it is not really a question of if I want to be on a first name basis with God, but rather what does it mean that God is on a first name basis with me? 
Let's read Genesis 2, 4 through 17. If you're new to using a Bible, the large numbers are the chapters. The small numbers are the verses. We're looking at 4 through 17. Hear the word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havelah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and Onyxon are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonders from your law, already predispose us to want to obey whatever we hear, that we'd lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge you, and that you would direct our paths. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, it's Genesis 2. You've heard a lot of sermons in your life on Genesis 2. What one word have you mainly considered this chapter to be about? How would you summarize this chapter in one word? Think about it. I'm going to give you some options. You've probably heard sermons where the one word could be work, the dignity of work, as Adam is placed in the garden to work it. Maybe in this passage you're wondering, where is the woman? And so your word is roles. Others of us, probably not from a church, but we have just heard the Adam and Eve story and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we say the one word is prohibition. No. My faith family, there are so many missteps that we can take in this passage. If you make this passage all about you, instead of what a representative, one representative, can do for you. Here in the second chapter of Genesis, we have a historical record, not of man establishing a relationship with God, but we have God establishing a relationship with mankind. And the language the Bible uses to talk about how we can be in relationship with God is this word covenant. What is covenant? At its core, it is simply an agreement between two parties that establishes a bond between them, and it spells out all the terms and conditions of that agreement, okay? So in that sense, when you hear the word covenant, you might think of contract. But in the Bible, a covenant is not a contract. 
Because a contract in our day and age applies mutuality. It takes two consenting parties to make a contract. But the covenants of the Bible are not hammered out, right, on some celestial bargaining table with God. Rather, covenants are sovereignly imposed by God. Let me just stop right there. I'm going to explain that in a second. But I just kind of saw some eyes and so forth. If you're our guest, I am so glad you are here. And what I want to say is this. This is one sermon that you've come to that I think is actually a gift of God's grace to you because you're going to understand the whole Bible in one sermon. Christians, teenager, Andy, thinking about missions, Thatcher, a good student. I'm just looking around, okay? I got excited to study my Bible with sermons like this. I'm not saying I'm going to do it as justice as much as my professors have, but I'm going to try my best that this is worth your life study. You can understand the whole Bible from here and Romans 5, which we read earlier. So here's my challenge. Dads that are tempted just to kind of be like, well, this is going to be a little bit long. Kids that are going to check out and draw on your sermon notes. Here's my challenge today. If you've never tried taking notes, see how long you can last. Just try. Try a couple things down. It is that big of a story. And I want to tell you the story before you bring in all of the kind of objections and hang-ups we have about some of these things that go on that are implications of the story. So I'm asking for a little time to get through it to deal with maybe some of the implications at the end. A covenant is not God and man bargaining on what this relationship is going to be like. God sovereignly imposed and says, this is what a relationship with me is going to be. So God did not come to Adam and say, what do you think? Want to have a relationship with me? You do? Great! What should it look like? That's not what God said. Neither does Adam come to God and say, I want to have a relationship with you. Here's what I was thinking. This is not, do you want to build a snowman? And I just could not stop hearing that in my head. Like, anybody want to play with me? Do you want to build a snowman? That's, that's not it. Okay? What is going on here is that this. If there is going to be a relationship between God and mankind, it is going to require God to condescend to us. And what do we find right in verse 4? We find for the first time a real big hint that God is willing to condescend and to meet with us because we have a name change. Did you notice in verse 4, it is the first time that we hear of this name, the Lord God. In Genesis 1, all we heard was God, Elohim, was the creator. But now for the very first time, we get capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, Yahweh. This one particular name that God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. It is also the same name of God that he displayed after the golden calf incident when Israel sinned and committed idolatry. And both times, God is revealing himself as this one who will come to you, who will enter your failure and will make a covenant to redeem you. That is all in this name, Lord. And the first readers, remember, they're already out of the Exodus. They already have known about Yahweh. They would have heard the name change Yahweh. 
So before we go any further, if we don't understand this basic truth, you'll not be able to understand anything else in your Bible about covenants. Here it is. This is going to be an affront to your self-esteem. There is nothing about you or me that demands that God has to relate to us. There is nothing about you or me that demands that God has to relate to us. That was true before Adam even rebelled against God. It is doubly true for you and me whose lives are marred by rebellion against the same God. If there is any relationship between God and mankind, it is not defined by a contract between equals, but by a covenant graciously and sovereignly imposed from the Lord God. So what is this covenant that God established at the very beginning? We might call it here in Genesis 2, the covenant of creation. But most theologians have called this the covenant of works. This covenant spells out three things about how we are going to relate to God. Here they are. This is your outline. It's easy. God's people. Who he makes a covenant with. God's place. Where in the realm you will experience all the blessings of this covenant. God's purpose. Why he entered into a covenant with you and what terms and conditions he lays down for that relationship to be maintained. So what's the points? God's people, God's place, God's purpose. First, God's people. Look at verses 5 through 8. A person is needed to, to sustain God's place. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up for the Lord, God had not caused it to rain on the, on the land and there was no man to work the ground. What do you hear in that verse over and over and over again? No bush, no small plant. The Lord God had not caused it to rain. There was no man. Then verse 7, then at that time, God formed man. God needs a person to accomplish all that he wants to do in this place. We also learn in this section that man and woman were made in succession, one before the other. Man from mud, woman from man. The question we must ask is why? Why the man first? Why is the woman not here yet? Here is the point. The Bible wants us to know that we all came from one man, not one couple. That is so important. I'm going to tease it out for you. The Bible wants you to know that we all came from one man, not one couple. Because notice the woman is made from man in Genesis 2, 21 through 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. We'll look at that next week some more. Okay? But we actually come from one man, not one couple. And here is at least one implication for you. It's a pretty hot topic today, race. If God created everyone from one man, there are no superior or inferior races. Biologically, you should even consider 
if we all came from one man, that there is no such thing as race biologically. But I don't want to focus on all of those other implications. I want to focus on just the theological implication. And this is the big daddy of the day. You have to catch this. You heard it in Romans 5, that Adam is not just standing there in his solitary state as an individual. Adam is standing there as a representative for all of us as the human race. Did you hear that in Romans 5? For by one man, all. For by one man, all. Over and over again. Read that verse this week as a family at your table once. Please. The covenant that God established with Adam here in Genesis 2 is on behalf of all of us. Which means that whatever blessings were promised to Adam were also promised to us. Whatever warnings were threatened to Adam were threatened to us. This is the only covenant with a universal scope. So the question, who is the people under this covenant of works? In Adam, we are all in a relationship with God based upon the terms and conditions in Genesis 2. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're probably going, why did I come today? I thought this was going to be helpful. Well, here's the implication of that today. Let me just break it down for you. Many people today assume that truth, especially religious truth, is in the eye of the beholder. It's kind of like beauty. If she looks cute to you, then she's cute. If he looks awesome to you, then he's awesome. And we think that religious truth, well, if it works for you, hey, I'm glad it works for you. But the truths of Christianity, the nature of Christianity will not admit such. What we learn from this is really clear. Your relationship to God, your accountability before God, is not dependent upon you recognizing it or validating it. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon you recognizing it or even validating it. Like it or not, God establishes a covenant sovereignly. Now, I know that as sinners, none of us like to be told that. We like to think that we should have a say. The truth of the Bible is, we don't get a say. These are the terms and conditions, and we will be held accountable to it. And so the only real question that remains for you is, how are you going to respond to the relationship that God has set up for us? Second, God's place. The realm that Adam and his posterity were to enjoy is found in verses 8 through 9. The Lord God planted this garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look down at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it, and keep it. The word Eden in Hebrew means delight. This is the garden of delight. When we think of garden, we typically think vegetable garden. Don't think of that here. Think of this more as an enclosed park, a place of organized beauty, a delightful place. Think of a paradise in a perfect world. And the first gardener is none other than God himself. The trees and bushes that he selects are unerring because he picks them in a way that they are both aesthetically pleasing and practically functional. The Bible says in verse 9 that all that he made and put there in this garden was pleasing to the eye and good for food. 
What a gardener. Every need that Adam had, God provided for. Just worship in that. This is the place and the context in which Adam and Eve were to experience the blessings of God's covenant. Now, of course, the greatest blessing was not all the trees and the garden and the fruit. The ultimate blessing wasn't even this perfect, intimate relationship as husband and wife. No, the greatest blessing of this Garden of Eden was that God himself was free to walk there and to dwell with man, and they could have a relationship with him that was free and unfettered and pure. They got to meet with God. Because not only was the Garden of Paradise, the Garden is actually a temple. The place where God and man meet. Did you know that later in Genesis 13, 10, the Garden of Eden is actually called the Garden of God. A place where God meets with Adam and Eve. Isn't that what a temple is? A place where God and man meet. And next thing you know, in Genesis 3, 8, we learn that God comes and walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. God has a place. And he settles his people in this place. They can delight ultimately in him. Now, the first readers of this Genesis account, remember, they were with Moses they would have been started to make connections between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle that was there in their midst. You guys are going to be thrilled when you understand this. They would have already been instructed by Moses exactly how the tabernacle was to be put together and what materials to use. They would have already have known the Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. They would have known its dimensions. They would have known that in the tabernacle is where God comes down and meets with Moses. And they would have heard this account after years of already being in the wilderness with Moses, and they would have had bells going off there. What are those bells? Well, first, it is the placement of the garden. It is in where, we learn, the east of Eden. So that if you wanted to go into Eden, you had to go through this garden first as a sort of entrance. And they would have started thinking, oh, that would have reminded me that you go into the tabernacle through the east side door. That's how you enter then they would have seen this tree of life. And it would remind them of the seven-branched lampstand, which had intricate leaf patterns that was there in the Holy of Holies. There is this, this tree, and, and we have one of those. It's in our Holy of Holies, and, it, and it's seven-branched, and it has leaves all over it. And the precious stones of gold and onyx, they would have known that was what the tabernacle was made out of. And not only that, the high priest actually had 12 of those onyx stones on his vestments. That's, that's where he got those from? And then the commandment about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have reminded them of the law that was there in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Lord that comes and walks with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden would have reminded them that that's how Moses met with God. God comes down to meet with them in a temple. And so Eden was an archetype upon which all temples were based. Which leads us to our final point this morning, God's purpose. What is God's purpose? What are the terms and conditions of this relationship? Well, it really changes when you begin to see Eden, not just as a garden, but also as a temple. First, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden. Right? That's our very first command. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
Adam is given a positive command to enjoy the garden to its fullest. The Hebrew here is actually very difficult to translate. This is what it says in Hebrew. From all the trees of the garden, eating you shall eat. It's just another way of trying to emphasize and underscore this basic idea. God is not telling Adam, you're free to eat. He is telling Adam, you are free to eat. God is saying, don't be shy. Don't go and nibble over here in the garden. Don't be hesitant. Don't worry, there's not going to be enough for tomorrow. Get out there and eat. That's what this verse is saying. Satisfy yourself on the abundant provision that I've provided. Put it to the test, Adam. See if you can make my lavish provision, abundant provision, run out. Get out there and eat. And in doing so, enjoy and relax in the security that comes from knowing that all of your physical needs have been provided for beyond your wildest imaginations. My non-Christian friend, how different is that than the typical way you understand the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden tree? in which God is pictured as an ogre in the sky, as the cosmic party pooper, who all he wants to do is say, don't touch, don't eat, don't taste, don't, 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 as if he has nothing better to do than to think of more ways in which to limit your joy and freedom. Here, Genesis 2 changes that story. There's no way you can come to the Bible because God has given you abundant provision and abundant permission. You are free to eat. It's the first command that Adam must obey. So what does Adam have to do? Trust. Trust God. Trust that God can meet all of your needs. And you demonstrate that you trust God by getting out there and eating to your heart's content. Matthew 6, 25 Flip over your New Testament to hear Christ's words. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 25. And then we'll look at verses 32 through 33. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 32, summarizing it all. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Faith family, does your life demonstrate before the world that you believe that God knows what you need and will provide for you. In this anxious age, could your testimony be one in which you point people to your Heavenly Father who knows all your needs and provides for all that you need? Second, God settled Adam in the garden to work it. Look at verse 15, Genesis 3.15. Go back there. I'm sorry, not 3.15, 2.15. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it 
and keep it. According to Genesis 2.15, Adam was created to work. So it turns out that your to-do list is not a sin. Work is not a result of the fall. Sure, the fact that it's toilsome or unsatisfying, that's part of what sin is, but work isn't. I mean, after all, God described himself as working in creation. It's a divine activity. What kind of work did God create us to do? Well, there's a debate. It's a really serious debate. It's the debate that people have over what was the oldest occupation. And so one guy says, you know, I think the oldest occupation must be a doctor because, I mean, it required a surgery to form Eve. So the oldest occupation is doctor. To which the engineer said, well, you know, from the beginning of time, God was creating order out of chaos. And that's kind of what engineers do. I mean, we kind of create order out of chaos. To which the politician speaks up and says, well, where do you think the chaos came from? I thought you needed a little break. It was kind of serious. I thought, okay. That was free. See me at the door. All right. All work, including politicians, can be pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so Adam's first job, though, was a gardener. He was put into the garden to work it. He becomes a gardener. And this is what you should be thinking. Like father, like son. Hmm. But notice that Adam wasn't only put into the garden to work it. He was also put in there to keep it. Now, you might think that the word keep it here just means to tend it, but the word here for keep is actually the word guard or to protect. This brings us to our third purpose for this covenant of works relationship. The purpose for Adam and Eve being in the garden was to worship. Here's the connection. Did you know that every time these two words, work and keep, appear in the five books of Moses, every other time it is talking about the work of a priest in the sanctuary? Every other time these two words are used in Moses, it's about a priest and what he does in the sanctuary. The priests are to work and to keep the temple. And the garden is a temple, and Adam now is the first priest. Therefore, his purpose is not just to be a farmer of the garden. Now his purpose also includes that he is to be a guardian of the garden. A watchman to guard and protect the temple from being profaned by keeping out anyone or anything that is not holy. Hmm. Isn't that good? If you are listening to this sermon and you are a man or a young man, or a father raising sons, do you see the role that you are to have here? Men, we work as a gardener, investing. Here it is, nurturing and cultivating, investing ourselves for the growth of others. Men, it is not a checking out, it is a checking in. And the next time these words are kind of pictured, think of Nehemiah's men building the wall. What do they bring with them to the wall? They have a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other because they are cultivating, developing for the good of others this wall, but they are also keeping everybody that is unholy, that doesn't need to be there, out with the sword. Young men who are dating, your role is to keep her safe and build her up in every way.
Feast on that, mom and dad, with your young man. I am so glad, Robert, you were here today. Your job is to keep her safe and build her up in every way. In doing so, men, young and old, you will be like Adam, upholding and defending the glory and honor and majesty of God. Here's where I think this covenant actually has a really big rub. You know what the rub is? When you come to this condition that you are to work it and keep it, there is nothing in it for you. There is no creature comfort in it. There is no social advantage in it. In fact, being faithful to this condition might mean losing comfort in this world. As the writer to Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, 32-34, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is he saying here when it comes to work and protecting? You can't tell me, men, women that go to work on Monday, that there will not be consequences in your office if you see your entire job as defending the honor of God in every occasion, without fail. Is that how you look at work? Do you look at your work as a place to uphold the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God and to defend the honor of His name? There's nothing for you when life gets tough except for delighting in the sheer worship of God. Does that thrill your soul? Do you delight in the prospect tomorrow morning of magnifying and upholding the glory of God and His name at work? That's what we were created for. We're to enjoy creation, but he expects us to magnify and uphold his name by defending it against all that is unholy. That leads us to our final condition. Look at verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. Here it is. Abundant provision, abundant permission. What? prohibition. One of all the trees, one of all of the trees in the garden that God said eat to, he says one of them you shall not eat. Now we don't know what kind of tree it was. It wasn't about what kind of tree it was. It wasn't about what kind of fruit it was. It was just merely the fact that this tree was designated as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? It was forbidden not because the tree itself was evil, but it was evil because it was forbidden. This is the one place where God wants Adam and Eve to refrain so that they can show they trust God to be God. Because if all you had were all these other good fruits and you were eating and eating and eating and eating all these good things, how would we know if you were just eating to the glory of God or eating to your gluttony? So God puts in this one thing to show that, are you trusting me to be God? Other conditions call on them to trust God for things and provision and purpose, but this condition puts to the test that God has the right to set conditions over you. So the question was really this. Would they trust God to determine what was right and wrong? Would they trust and obey God simply because he was God and they were not? 
Or would they assert themselves to be God? Would they claim autonomy, self-rule, to determine for themselves what's right and wrong? That's deep in our culture, isn't it? Every young person today, because of what we as parents have modeled for them, is that we believe freedom to decide your own moral standards is really what it means to be fully human. How could you be human if you didn't have a choice to make for you? Everyone must decide what's right and wrong for them. Well, I think the Bible challenges that here. And everything would depend upon their obedience at this critical point. If they obeyed God, they would be promised life forever. If they disobeyed God, they would surely die. Sure, physical death eventually, but spiritual death immediately. And that's why this covenant is called the covenant of works. It depends upon their work of obedience, whether they would do it or not. This is the covenant under which every single human is born. Faith family, do you want to live under this covenant? Then keep it. As our catechism question said, what does the law of God require? Right? Trust God fully. Imitate God faithfully. Honor God unfailingly. Obey God perfectly. This is the covenant that we stand under today, just as Adam and Eve did when they were created. If you want life and blessing from God, all you have to do is keep this covenant. That's what Paul says in Romans 2.7. To those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Do you want life? Keep this covenant. Oh, just one thing, of course. Shouldn't be overlooked. This covenant has already been broken. Genesis chapter 3 tells the end of the story. Instead of Adam guarding the garden, Adam allowed the intrusion of Satan into the garden. Faith family, would you recognize the tragedy of the fall is not just that Eve gave in to the serpent, but that Adam allowed the serpent to even get into the garden in the first place. If Adam was fulfilling his God-given role, he would have jumped in front of his wife at the sound of the first hiss, grabbed the snake by the neck. If they have a neck? Some biology guys going to come to me afterwards and be like, actually, Pastor, there is no such thing as a neck and a snake. Okay, whatever it is, break it, okay, in righteous anger and worship to God. That's what he should have done. But instead of doing battle with Satan... And squashing the rebellion, they surrender to God's enemy. You want to know something that's really interesting? Here's a little side note. What word have we heard for God in this chapter over and over and over again? What is it? Lord God. You know the only place in Genesis 2 through 4 that Lord God is not used? Genesis 3, 2 through 5, when Satan talks about God. He doesn't want you to think of God as covenant, faithful, coming to you, entering into your failure, and redeeming you in good and covenant faithfulness. He wants you to think of God as this evil, miser, Scrooge, who doesn't give you that one tree. And that name is left out in Genesis 3, 2 through 5. Interesting, huh? I think it's one of the tricks of Satan in his scheme is to get us to forget who God is or to refuse to acknowledge him as Lord God. So what hope is there? This covenant 
that one time held out the promise of life because Adam broke it and we were all in Adam and we all disobeyed in Adam. Now there is only a covenant of judgment against us. What will save us from our plight? How will this problem be resolved? Here it is. Man needs a helper. We need the woman to produce another man who is willing and able to endure the bite of the serpent, but yet still crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. If you are here listening to the sermon, and you are a woman, a young girl, or a mother raising daughters, do you see the glory of being called a helper? For too long, this word has been misunderstood. Many have tried to read less into the word helper than what it means so that women can be abused or exploited, maintaining that women are just a means that allows me to basically live how I want to live my life as a man. But we need to let Bible words have Bible definitions. Let me say that again. Bible words need to have Bible definitions. And the Bible word helper here is one of God's own self-preferred titles. Who calls himself a helper? God. Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 33, Psalms 20, Psalms 121. So to capture the significance of the title helper, let me see if I can break it down for you. Here it is. God says this. I will make, says God, for Eden's only son, what I myself will be to Israel later on. This man here will have one like me. One that will live beside him. One that will stand beside him. One that will fight for him. And one that will deliver him. What? For just as Israel would need me, says God, so he will need her. For just as Israel would be lost without me, so too he would be alone without her. It went from no, 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 to that there was one not found that was like him. Just as Israel will have enemies that will require military aid to deliver her, so too man will have adversaries that only can be overcome by her and through the one that will come through her. Helper in all of its glory as God intends. We do not need to turn to feminist ideology to see woman in all of her resplendent beauty. She is companion, like God, who will deliver man from his solitude and eventually his sin. And that is the hope of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 5 that Jesus accomplished what Adam failed to do. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here's Jesus, born of a woman to provide deliverance for man. 
born under the covenant of works, born under the law, kept the law perfectly as a second Adam, now is a new representative for God's people and brings with him a new covenant to gain for God's people life and blessing that Adam's disobedience and our sin forfeited. Christ at the Last Supper raises his cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm the new representative bringing in a new covenant at my expense so that you can come into a life of blessing with God. He obeyed the human covenant as a human being, earning blessing, but instead of taking the blessing, he took our curse on the cross right? The curse of the covenant that we deserve for our covenant breaking, so that when we believe in him, his blessings become ours. That's the gospel. The great hope of Christianity is this. If you're not here and you're not a believer, I plead with you. You do not have to be a guilty son or daughter of Adam, but through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you, the second Adam, you can become the righteous sons and daughters of God. So what does it mean to be on a first-name basis with God? You know, what does it mean that God is on a first-name basis with you? The answer depends on which covenant you want to stand in. My non-Christian friend, I know that you are afraid to hear that God has authority to impose a covenant on you. You are afraid that God will exploit you. My non-Christian friend, Christianity is the only religion that says God gave himself for you. Will you come as a son or daughter of Adam? Or will you come with that name of Jesus so that you can be a brother or sister, an adopted child of God? We're going to sing how we are redeemed through this new covenant redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is enough that Jesus died for me. How we love to proclaim it. Stand with us and sing redeemed.